0: So we come this morning to our final sermon in our sermon series from the Gospel of Mark. Next week we'll start a new series entitled Songs for the Summer in the Psalms. But let's keep that text open now then and pray for God's help as we open his word. Father, we have opened your word, but you must open our hearts and our prayer is that you would do that today. Encourage us where we are despondent and rebuke us where we are proud. Yes. For any drifting from, from you into sin today, grant grace and enable us to be those who know and love you and wholeheartedly commit to serving you, this King of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The American team engaged in a firefight. Osama bin Laden did not resist. Those were the words from a senior Pentagon official summing up the historic raid on the 2nd of May, 2011, in which SEAL Team Six secretly descended on that compound in Pakistan. The doors were blown open, the enemy engaged. The goal, to kill or capture the terrorist leader Osama Bin Laden in Pakistan. News reports previously had described how his compound was surrounded with barbed wire and 18-foot walls. There were seven-foot walls surrounding the balconies and it was designed to obscure all sight lines from multiple directions. Codenamed Operation Neptune Spear, it involved 24 seals with two helicopters who flew in beneath the radar through various routes to avoid detection. With night vision goggles, they infiltrated the compound, killing anyone who put up resistance, securing women and children, clearing weapons stashes and barricades. The raid was called a defining moment in US military history. With its successful completion, Operation Neptune Spear ended the life of the great mastermind, an enemy of the United States of America the leader of terror, uh, Osama bin Laden, his body eventually thrown into the Pacific Sea. Well, it's about a dangerous operation, overthrowing a deadly enemy, securing a mighty liberation that Mark is describing today. Not the enemy of a country like the states, but of the whole of humanity, and of the kingdom of God, Satan himself. Last week, if you were with us, there might have been something of a cognitive dissonance. We were on the mountain with Jesus in that extraordinary moment of transfiguration and glory, basking, if you like, in the glory of the kingdom as Jesus is transfigured before our very eyes. But I say cognitive dissonance because that's not what life for us is like. We're not high on the mountain in glory, but down here on earth in struggle, suffering, and pain. This is a dangerous world, and the chances are high that virtually everybody here today in some way or other is suffering from the effects of evil. So what's the connection between the glory up on the mountain and the suffering down here on earth? Because in verse 14, Jesus now moves down the mountain and it's very striking that as soon as he arrives back at the bottom, there is a violent confrontation with cosmic evil. And the point that Mark is making is clear, that the road to glory, the roadmap to future glory is going to be conflict and suffering in the face of of evil. All three Gospels place this account next to the transfiguration. The commentator William Lane puts it really well like this. The return from the glory of the transfiguration to the reality of demonic possession serves to reinforce the theme that Jesus enters into his glory only through confrontation with the demonic and only through the suffering that this entails. Because up on the mountain, the Father intervenes with an imperative from heaven. This, this is my son. Listen to him. We are to listen to Jesus. It's a command from the Father. But what was it that Jesus had just been teaching about? But his suffering and death to defeat evil. This is my son. This is the king who will defeat evil through his suffering at Calvary. Listen to and trust in him. For this account takes us through a number of compelling scenes, at least three. And the first one in our notes is this, terror in verse 14, Jesus and the three disciples come down the mountain, and they're met with a crowd and the religious establishment in the middle of a debate with the nine other disciples. And the dispute centers in on a man who has brought his son to be healed, but the disciples can't help, which is odd. Because back in chapter three, Jesus had given authority to the disciples to cast out demons. Demons. The diagnosis is terrifying, verse 17. It's a desperate man. His son is possessed with an evil spirit that makes him mute, verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. This is every parent's worst nightmare. Every parent knows the whole purpose of being a father is to provide and protect This man can do neither. The emotion of this father would be the emotion that you would feel if you were at the bedside of your child in the emergency room watching the life drain from his face. As the medics say, we don't know what we can do. And as you see the monitor with the life just literally going down and down with seconds or minutes left to spare as your child screams in agony for help. Dad, help. In verse 20, Mark shows us both the overwhelming power of evil and the destructive nature of evil. The overwhelming power of evil, the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, how long has this been going on? And he said, since childhood. Imagine this. From infancy, your little boy that you love so much, seizing himself and foaming at the mouth and flailing around, screaming for help. This is a scarring and disfiguring, deforming picture. And it stands for the dehumanizing effects of evil. This boy's life is not worth living. This is a subhuman existence. He's out of control. He can't speak or hear, but he lives under the dark shadow of convulsions, under the authority and control of something else. The overwhelming power of evil, then the destructive nature of evil, verse 22, as this spirit throws him into the fire and into the water to destroy him This spirit's sole objective is this boy's destruction. I imagine they've put a fence around the garden. They try and keep this boy in. But the power of evil means he goes beyond the fence, over the fence, down to the lake. How often has this boy been plunged into the fire? How many burns do you think he might have? How many near misses have there been? How many times have this family had to plunge him out of the lake or out of the flames. It's a violent, terrifying picture. Because this is not a nervous disorder for the neurologist. This is hellish. And there's no time to waste. These are near fatal seizures. This is a 911. One more and he could die. And you can hear the desperation in the father's voice, if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. This picture then brings us to the uncomfortable truth of the existence of evil and of the power of Satan. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan tries to portray that in what must be the most terrifying scene in the whole story as Pilgrim, the Christian, meets Apollyon, listen to this, he went on and Apollyon met him, and the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they were his prides. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was the mouth of of a lion. It's quite accurate in terms of what the Bible teaches, which is that there is a terrifying enemy who opposes us and the kingdom of God, Satan, the devil. And ever since the beginning, when in the garden the man and the woman said no to God, in judgment against our sin, God rightly has handed us over as a human race to the power of the devil. We are slaves to him, and he holds us captive, rather like the children catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, as he lures us into his cage and takes us away to destruction, or like the Pied Piper of Hamelin as he plays the tune and we follow him down to the river of death. We look around the world and we know something is wrong, We see international conflict and abuse. We see child abuse, inner-city shootings. We look at our own lives and we know something is wrong, but what sense can we make of it? Our progressive culture will tell us, well, the problem is to do with the power structures of oppressor oppressed. If only we can unoppress the oppressed and change these structures and improve on education and socio economic um, metrics, then of course we can deal with the problem and make progress, and the world can become the utopia we all dream it one day might be. but what the post enlightenment mind can 't understand is that behind the curtain of history and behind the stage sets of the universe, there are spiritual realities at work. There is a devil with power against us. The Apostle Paul puts it like this that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers over this present darkness. Because ever since the beginning of the world, we have been born into sin under the control of Satan who holds us like a captor jangling the keys. We're kept under the control of his power. And this boy's plight stands actually as a picture of our condition. This boy can do nothing to save himself. And in a dramatic way, he stands as the personification of us without Christ terror. But it takes us to our second scene which I'm calling Impotence. One of my favorite movies uh, is The Great Escape and it tells the uh, true story of uh, 76 Allied airmen. It was produced this movie in 1963. Who can forget the famous final scene uh, on the motorbike as Steve McQueen kind of makes it and then doesn't—it's devastating. But it's an amazing movie. It tells the story of the 76 Allied airmen. They were in Nazi prisoner-of-war camp, at Luft 3. And with great ingenuity and determination, the Americans with the Brits decided to form those tunnels. Tom, Dick, and Harry. And through sheer grit, as the first one, Tom, was discovered, they then concentrated on Dick and then eventually Harry. And through sheer grit and determination and ingenuity, they got out against all of the odds. So what's our escape plan? Cosmic evil controls us. We're held prisoners of war, if you like, against the power of Satan. So what's the escape plan? How can we tunnel out... And the answer is we can't. And that's what this man sees. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. So why have they failed? Because in chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus has given the disciples authority to cast out the demons. And to their credit, they've tried to help the boy, but can't. Is it then that the power of Jesus is deficient? Is it then that he is a king that can't deliver us from cosmic evil? The religious delegation are beginning to wonder. But it's the response of Jesus in verse 19 that is so telling. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? This is a poignant cry of extreme exasperation. It is an expression of exhaustion, which is, in the original, close to heartbreak. It's addressed not to the onlookers, but to the disciples, who are no different to the world. Why have the disciples failed? Why can't they cast the demon out? Why is evil triumphing? It's because they are self-reliant and because they have not learned to trust in him. This mistake of these disciples, that though they profess faith, they don't trust, is the same mistake we all make week by week and day by day. Because if we're honest, so many of us, myself very much included, whilst I profess faith, I live as a practical atheist. Which is that I don't bring the power of Jesus to bear in all of the difficult situations I'm faced with. Yet we live on the other side of the gospel story, in the full blaze of God's revelation. have seen his death at Calvary and his mighty resurrection. We've heard his word as he ascends into heaven. We, we know he's coming back. And we live as Pentecost Christians, having received the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that God loves us and is powerful to deliver us. And yet, we live, do we not, as practical atheists. When our children were younger, they had this little phrase that was very telling and very funny. So they'd get stuck uh, tying their shoelaces the wrong way, maybe accidentally tying one shoe uh, into the other or something like that, and we could see it was gonna lead to disaster and uh, devastation. And so I would try and help. And they'd say, by self. I wanna do it by self myself. And this is us. We hate to be dependent. There hasn't been a week uh, where I have gone into my office on a Sunday morning and successfully yet printed my sermon. So please pray for me in this area of administrative difficulty and agony and torture. So um, I link up my laptop and um, there are four possible options of printer. I think my printer is still... Uh, printing in England. I think that's, that's what's going on, so I print, and somewhere in England the sermon is sort of being produced. Um, I cannot do it, and so every Sunday morning it's, uh, Michael, can you print my sermon for me, and while you're at it, check it theologically, but I cannot actually print the sermon. It's very, very humbling, even this morning. It's awful. I want to do it myself. I hate to be dependent, and yet I am. We hate to be financially dependent, emotionally dependent. We hate to be dependent on others. What Jesus is teaching here is we have to be dependent on him. I wonder if the theological error that undergirds this is deism. Deism is a strange idea, but it's the idea that there is an upstairs world and a downstairs world, like a house. And God lives upstairs in heaven, and we live downstairs on earth, in the grit and the stuff and pain of life. And God is sort of upstairs somewhere in heaven, busy. He made the world like the watchmaker, and it's ticking away quite nicely. Occasionally the watch is in trouble, but God's busy as a distant deity somewhere else. And we're left to sort it out downstairs. Whilst none of us would actually articulate it quite like that, I wonder if that's what we are, practical atheists, or perhaps more accurately, practical deists. I wonder what problems you're facing in your life. It might be a family problem, the problem of children wandering away from the faith. Maybe it's you're encountering persecution somewhere, Maybe elderly parents who are not saved, or an inf- impossible financial uh, situation, or, or physical pain, or, or a temptation that just won't go away. And then the question is, how much are we trusting Jesus with that? How much are we asking him for his power and authority over it? Because in verse 22, impotence becomes faith as the camera closes in on this desperate father who cries out, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And I love verse 23 as Jesus lovingly and gently draws out and then nurtures this this fledgling faith. If you can, verse 23, all things are possible for him who believes. It's the most misquoted verse in the New Testament. All things are possible for him who believes. The Lamborghini, uh, the luxury villa in Bermuda. Not quite, I'm sorry to say, because the question is, what's the impossible here? And the impossible here is deliverance from the uncontrollable power of evil to destroy you. The impossible here is escape from the power of Satan into whose hands we have been justly handed over for sentence. The impossible here is to be delivered from our sins and to be delivered from hell. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul puts it like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, Satan, who is at work in the disobedience. All of us lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. There is no great escape. The impossible is deliverance. And in verse 28, these discouraged disciples ask Jesus, why? Why is it that we could not cast the demon out? Verse 29, his answer, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. Only as we trust Jesus. Because what is prayer? But as Calvin put it, the chief Exercise of faith. We are united to Jesus by his spirits. And we depend on Jesus in prayer. And through union with Christ and dependence on Christ, we are given all of the resurrection power of God to defend us and deliver us in the now from evil. Luther speaks of how he prays along these lines with great boldness. Listen to this. I throw my entire sack in front of his door and I rub his ears with all his promises and I tell him if he will not answer, how can I ever pray to him again? Turn on to chapter 10, verse 15, if you're following in the Bibles. As Jesus narrows down what this faith looks like, chapter 10, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will not enter it. And just the other day, I was looking at a photograph um, of our first child at her birth and I was holding uh, her, Emily, and I was just reminded of the extraordinary emotion uh, of a first-time father holding a baby and then thinking to yourself, this child is dependent on me for everything, literally. The thing is that in ancient Rome, children had no rights. The father was peta familias and had absolute sovereignty over the household. In ancient Rome, if your child angered you, you had the legal right to disown them, to sell them into slavery, or to kill them. Peter Familius would own the property and sons could only inherit title after he had died. So when Jesus says we are to inherit the kingdom and receive the kingdom and live the kingdom as infants, what he's saying is as people who have no rights and no power, This is so hard for Americans because this is a meritocracy. We love the self-made man. This is a self-made nation. This is a rights-based society. But this text is directly confronting our self-reliance. And it's saying that the only defense from cosmic evil is to admit your impotence and to come with the faith of a child Totally dependent on Jesus for everything. Terror, impotence. And then third and last, notice deliverance. Verse 25, it's dramatic. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. And he got up. The release is secured through the word of Jesus. It is a double command the exorcism is so total, so violent, it shakes the boy so he looks dead. This convulsion describes the depth of demonic resistance. It looks as though the power of evil over this boy is total. No human agency can deal with this, but Jesus speaks and the boy is delivered and the picture here is of conquest a violent dethroning of satan as evil is vanquished for this jesus has supreme authority over evil don't think of the universe as a cosmic battle between good and evil and sometimes evil will win and then sometimes jesus will win no jesus has supreme authority over the whole of his universe and over all evil for all time. This is dramatic conquest. But how does it work? If it is the case that we have been handed over to Satan in judicial sentence for our sin, If our being under the control of Satan is the punishment for our sin in turning from God, how does this work and how is this possible? And the answer only comes in what Jesus says next, which is all to do with his death. Evil will be vanquished through the cross. And in verse 30 to 32, we have our second cross prediction It echoes Isaiah 53, that the Son of Man will be handed over. That's Isaiah 53. For this Jesus is the suffering servant who will bear the sins of the people and who in being defeated by evil will defeat evil through his substitutionary, vicarious and triumphant death. In aristocracy, in the past, in England, when a child was being disobedient, what would happen would be that the governess, think Downton Abbey, uh, would actually pass some kind of sanction against the child and report this to the father. The child's been disobedient, he hasn't done his homework, he's been rude to the governess, or something like that. Then what would happen would be that the boy would be whipped. But they actually had a way to spare the boy because it was difficult for a member of the aristocracy to be whipped by somebody of a lower class. They literally employed what was called the whipping boy. The boy would come in and then would take the full force Of the punishments on behalf of the other. And the naughty little boy would stand there and watch as the punishment was administered, and then he would be told, You see, that's what you deserve. Don't do it again. It's a crass picture, it's a true one from history. But Jesus, if you like, the whipping boy who takes our punishments that we might be delivered from cosmic evil as we are united to Jesus Christ at his resurrection. But as we finish, I wonder if this power through union with Christ, this extraordinary power over evil, I wonder if it's dawned on us that we have it. Or is it that we live as practical atheists, practical deists? I wonder if we were to make a, a list of all of our problems the chronic pain, the emotional scars of the past, persecution from somewhere, difficulty at work, difficulty in a marriage, difficulty raising children, people we love walking away from the faith. Do we understand this power is available to us through union with Christ? And do we understand that this power is ours through prayer? Or is it that we struggle on, defeated, as practical atheist deists. You'll have heard of Walt Disney, but you won't have heard of Thelma Howard. She was his maid. Actually, she was nicknamed the real life Mary Poppins. She moved in to care for Walt Disney and his children after the death of Walt Disney's wife. She cooked the meals, she raised his two daughters, Yet, she was paid a very modest annual salary, slightly less or more than the average housekeeper, which was strange. Yet, every year, she received a little envelope, which was brown, and she put it in her bottom drawer, never really opening them. What people didn't realize was that the envelope contained stocks and shares into Walt Disney's business. And as Walt Disney and the franchise grew, so then did her share in the business. She died in 1994 and had amassed an extraordinary 193,000 shares worth $9.5 million. But she died in poverty in a tiny house and then a tiny nursing home. Little did anybody know that actually she was a multi-millionaire worth $9.5 million. And so many of us are like this. We are so poor and so weak. Little do we know that we have in those envelopes, if you like, stocks and shares in the kingdom of God and the power of Jesus. The hymn writer is right to ask, Are you weak and heavy laden, burdened with a load of care? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Terror, impotence, deliverance. This kind can only come out through prayer, through trusting in Christ. The application this coming week make sure wherever you are whatever you're faced with that you take it to Christ and know his power and presence because at the cross in the resurrection and at his return evil has been eternally vanquished let's pray and so father our prayer today is that we would be those who trust in your son that we would listen to him and enable uh, ourselves to live for him. Fill us with your spirits. Give us confidence and courage in the face of evil. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.